what was with that? Like, no way that exists in the sewerage. You know, that doesn't, that's not who put the water park ride into the sewers. <laughs> Dodge this. I am the father. I'm here on a mission of mercy. There's only one God, man, and I'm pretty sure he doesn't dress like that. Let's put a smile on that face. I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Welcome to the real world. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 103 of the Movie Bite podcast. We're going to be talking about movies, movie reviews, movie news, trailers, and more. We're recording on Tuesday, August the 26th, 2014. I'm TJ, your host, and joining me tonight is the ninja. I think he read a book on how to do cool ninja stuff, and now he can do cool ninja stuff. And he might also have come in contact with some mutagen at some point. It's unknown. It is Joe Darnell. How are you, Joe? Chawabunga, dude. I got my half shell on and I'm ready to rock. <laughs> okay. See, I never, I, I prepare these opening statements and I write them out thoroughly and thoughtfully. And then once you react, I never know what to do after that. Yeah, me neither. <laughs> I really don't know where we're going with this. Yeah, I don't either. <laughs> How are you doing, Joe? Uh, doing great, TJ. How are you, sir? I'm doing well. Uh, I'm, I'm rather busy um, and it's a yeah, problem. Yeah, it's the busiest year yet. It, it definitely is. And, uh, too yeah, many we, movies, too much life, too much life is happening. Way too much life, way too much work stuff. We just lost a developer at, at work and, uh, yeah, the oh. rest of us have to pick up the slack and, uh, cause we're having a hard time hiring. Oh, it's a big, it's a big thing. And everybody yeah, tunes in the podcast racket. just for the, as it is a tough racket. Yes. <laughs> used to be a, used to be a salesman. <clears throat> yes. A little bit of inside baseball for anybody who happens to also listen to, uh, to uh five by five podcasts the podcasts everywhere yes yes <clears throat> is this a show is this what people tune in for oh absolutely it's, it, it all begins with our awesome music and our uh sound bites and then you know our, our awkward jokes and then we get into the movie news yeah well uh if we're out of awkward jokes maybe we can talk about this uh marvel versus dc movie schedule a uh, movie release schedule infographic that somebody worked up that i i really found informative have you had a chance to look at this yes joke? this is not only informative but this is also just really well done uh, i i do appreciate whoever put the time and energy into this because they break it down in a graphical way that everybody can see and understand it makes a heck of a lot more sense now and it also really clarifies why all of us should be uneasy about DC movies and why Marvel just keeps rocking it, like getting better and better. So, so this infographic, let me paint a word picture for our listeners because that's what, uh, that's what radio is, is theater of the mind. So I had to paint a word picture. Um, and so on this infographic, it's basically a, in a column kind of format, although not, not like a spreadsheet, but just, you know, two columns. One on, on one side is Marvel and on the other side is DC. And on the Marvel side... Uh, they've got uh, Marvel Studios films. They've got Fox films that, you know, because the rights are a little bit messed up. Um, uh, Fox uh, owns the rights to things like Fantastic Four and X-Men. Sony uh, is another one that's in here. They own the rights to the Spider-Man franchise. And then Marvel Studios has the rest of them. So on uh, the 1st of May uh, of 2015, you have The Avengers Age of Ultron coming out. That's by Marvel Studios. And then uh, Fox has uh, Fantastic Four coming out on June the 19th of 2015. 
Then Marvel has Ant-Man coming out on the 17th of July. And then on the 6th of March of 2016, they have Captain America 3. And finally, we get to the first DC film on March 25th of 2016, which is Batman 5 Superman. Excuse me, Batman v Superman, uh, Dawn of Justice. This actually brings up an interesting question for me, and I think at some time I probably knew the answer. And, you know, TJ, since you know all things movies, I thought I should ask you. Okay. How come Fox owns rights to several Marvel franchises? And why is it that Sony has Spider-Man? And why is it that Marvel can't get these rights back? And why is it that Marvel gets all the cred anyway if any of these movies go well? Well, okay, so my understanding, and I don't have a perfect understanding of this. I Mostly this is bits and pieces that I've, I've, I've gleaned over the years. Somebody who really studies these sorts of things would probably do better. But from my understanding, and this information is freely out there. I've just never taken the time to comprehensively sit down and sift through it. Uh, but, but back in the early, uh, I'm sorry, the late 90s and the early 2000s, Marvel was really struggling. Uh, and they started uh, farming out the rights uh, for uh, franch- certain franchises like X-Men, uh, the Fantastic Four. Um, and that's uh, when we probably got the Sam rating me Spider-Man films, correct. right? Correct. When Sony acquired the rights to Spider-Man, I, I'm, not, I'm, I'm unclear on the details of who approached who, but Sony got the rights to Spider-Man. And the whole reason why they, they, they rebooted the Spider-Man franchise is because they were going, the, the rights, after a certain period of time of no movies being made, would revert back to Marvel. And Sony didn't want that to happen. They wanted to continue to capitalize on uh, on Spider-Man. And so they made a movie that's no good. Uh, uh, they rebooted it into a series that's no good as far as I'm concerned. And, oh, uh, yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, it has its ups and, ups and downs, but mostly downs. Mostly downs. That's right. And I'm not saying there's no redeeming qualities to, to any of the new Spider-Man, but there's not many. Uh, so that's how Sony has the rights. Fox has the rights to X-Men uh, because Marvel wasn't doing well. They weren't organized as they are now. Um, and uh, they did not have the Marvel Studios aspect and the Marvel Cinematic Universe that was all non-existent. And uh, really, they, you know, Kevin Feige has done a, a great job of, of restructuring things. But but the rights still are farmed out, and there's contracts. I mean, they can't violate the contracts. And I, I don't know when the rights revert back. At some point, I believe, my understanding is the rights will eventually revert back to Marvel. But uh, right now, the, the, the film rights to certain franchises are just not, uh, you know, these studios have the rights, and they're not willing to give them up. They're not even willing hardly to collaborate with Marvel because that's their, their baby, their puppy. And Marvel gets a certain cutback, a kickback from these films, but they, they don't have any creative control whatsoever. What's interesting about this uh, chart here on our website is that at the top, it shows you just how many film, well, actually all the way down, it'll show you just how many superhero movies you can expect from year to year. So in 2015, right now, we have scheduled three, The Avengers, Fantastic Four from Fox, and Marvel's Ant-Man. Mm-hmm. And I find that interesting because... For the most part, we've had more than three superhero films a year for the last few years, at least it seems like. And then in 2016, there are more movies. There's one, two, three, four, five, six, six in 2016, and then another five in 17. It, it, it just goes on and on and on. And then 2018, there is one, four, four, seven scheduled. That's going to be a huge year. Yeah. And, um, and I, I imagine some of these might be canceled or they may be pushed back who knows what but because we have marvel studios fox sony and dc's warner brothers studios all working on these that's how they can get them all out so quickly 
I think that general audiences don't really appreciate just how many studios are working behind the scenes on these things. Right. And if it was just Marvel Studios doing Marvel, you know, to, to be fair, if it was just Marvel Studios doing Marvel Comics uh, movies, then we would not see as many. But it is three different studios doing Marvel comic movies. So, um, and like I said, when it's all said and done, Marvel's going to get all the credit or all mm, of the lambashing. Yeah, there is a little bit of a problem that way where, you know, Marvel is, is somewhat, although I think most people are generally aware that Marvel does not have a lot of creative control over the Spider-Man series, for instance, and Sony, you know, pretty heavily advertises Spider-Man. Uh, and the same with Fox. I think there's a general, maybe I'm overestimating people, but I think there's a general understanding that there is the Marvel Cinematic Universe, which comprises, you know, Iron Man, Thor, uh, Captain America, um, and the Hulk, uh, and and uh, the Avengers, and uh, then there's the rest of Marvel stuff. So I think people kind of understand that, I hope. Uh, but what's interesting to me here is you have, even taking away the Fox and Sony movies, you have several titled Marvel films, and you don't get, until you get further down the chart, there are no untitled Marvel films coming up. Here's the DC side. Uh, the DC side is two films in 2016, Batman v- 5 Superman, as I like to call it, and then Untitled DC Film. 2017, Untitled DC Film, Untitled DC Film. 2018, Untitled DC Film, Untitled DC Film. 2019, Untitled DC Film, Untitled DC Film. You're sensing a pattern here. They don't know what they're doing, but they're they're scheduling some films out there. We don't know what franchises they're associated with or, or anything. But I don't hold it against them because at this point, most of the uh, most of the the outspoken producers and filmmakers are already on the bandwagon for Marvel films. So DC has limited resources. Even if they do excel at any given one of these films, it's going to take a lot more time and energy from a smaller collection of filmmakers to make them out there, get them out there. Yeah. Remember that Marvel's got the help of Fox and Sony to output this number of films. Whereas DC to its credit still has all the rights and they're wanting to control those. You know, if DC wanted to farm out what they're doing, if they wanted to be bought by Disney, like everybody else, they probably could, but you know, they want to hold onto those rights and they want to have more control over their characters. Yeah. But and I think it, at the heart of it though, TJ at the heart of it though, DC understands the integrity of their comic book characters. They are gold. They're not going to let them go anywhere. And what am I saying? None of this makes any no, sense. No, it doesn't make any sense. Have you seen the same DC films I've seen? <laughs> yeah, I know. See, that's the thing. Is like There is a breakdown here. You want, I want, I'm sorry. I shouldn't speak for TJ. Uh, I really want to see that DC can excel and be forgiven like of um, some of their faults, their major Superman faults. And, uh, you know, I, I, I'm really kind of thinking like we're being let down because Christopher Nolan didn't, you know, literally promise us anything, but he produced the man of steel. And I figured that a, an awesome guy like he would be better than, uh, or his involvement would reflect better on the Man of Steel than it did. Really, what we got was a Zack Snyder film with, uh, you know, more of a budget for a mainstream character than Zack Snyder had ever been given license to dabble with before. Yeah, that's all we got. Yeah, I, I you're you're more of a Superman fan than I am, but I'm, I'm a Superman fan too, and I was so disappointed. We've, we've talked. I, about this. We're rehashing, right. but I'd love to I bash think- on it. It was so disappointing. I still think, though, that the audience, the Movie Byte listeners, need to appreciate something. We don't just like Superman's films for the sake of liking Superman's films. As At is the heart obvious of it, by the fact right. that we didn't like Man of Steel. 
Right. Like at the heart of it, we really just appreciate the character and his universe, like his uh, mythology, if you will. And we would like to see it done better than ever before, or at least return to some of the glory of the original Superman with Christopher Reeve. We think that that could be done today and it could be done really well if the right people could just take it seriously and we would have some talented writers and directors. And when we talk about the glory of the Christopher Reeve Superman, we're really talking about the first film because they just went downhill from there. And Superman three and four, I like to pretend don't even exist. Okay, Dale, this is just a huge hypothetical question. What do you think of the possibility of Richard Donner being involved in a new Superman film? Like, what would that look like? Would it be better or worse, or would it just not make a difference? Uh, um, I don't think that's going to happen now at this point. I don't think that he – I think he would look at this train wreck and go, there, what, what can I do? There's no playground here for me to play in. Like, I'd have to play in this playground, and this – you know, the sandbox is full of – the cat's been in it, let's say, and, uh, uh, you know, and I'd, I'd have to work on these broken monkey bars, and, you know, the swings are all wrapped around the posts, and, and the, there's been nails driven into the slides. And No, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I was metaphor man, TJ. <laughs> no, I, I, I mean, I would love to 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 just wipe away everything that has happened since um uh since Brian Singer's uh Superman Returns because I liked that film, uh, hey. but I'd like to just wipe away all the Man of Steel stuff and let Richard Donner come in and have his full vision realized because I think even with the first Superman film, you you had this sense that he was a little bit shackled, and then they they basically fired him off the second film and retooled it into something awful. I'd you know, like you're like the him. only person I know who will you know speak know. up for Brian Singer. I know, I know, but I really love that film. It is my second favorite Superman film. I I'll give you that. Because the other Superman films are really lackluster, but that still doesn't give it the credibility that it should have had. Oh, not in this age. Mm. I mean, like all things considered, I appreciated the Thor movies more and the Thor movies are at the bottom of the barrel for the Marvel films. Apart from any of the bad ones that aren't even really worth mentioning, like the Punisher or uh, daredevil. Oh gosh. No. Well, actually, you know what? I I, I got to take that back. The Punisher film was worth seeing once. It wasn't. Mm. It was not a good film, but it was it was a nice. It was nice seeing once. <laughs> I'm just I'm just not excited by anything that Marvel's doing right now. Yeah, I'm just yeah, not. me neither. Uh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Marvel, I said Marvel. I meant DC. I am so sorry because I love everything Marvel's doing right. Or most of the things that Marvel's doing right now. I, I, I don't love the things that DC is doing. So I'm going to put this link for this uh, infographic in the show notes. Joe, Joe, can you tell me, in so much as you, insofar as you know, I'm sorry, I can't do a good Merlin. Could 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 you tell me where to find the show notes, or do I need to do that? No, no, no. no. I, I got it here, TJ. It's right here. So you go to moviebyte.com/slash/mbpodcast/slash/103. That's it. That's where you find the show notes. And this link uh, for this infographic will be in there. Now, you wanted to uh, you wanted to move on to the next thing, I think. Oh, yeah. So, TJ, have you heard about this trailer that Michael Bay did of Up? <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I've heard a little bit about it, um, and I'd like to talk about it. Let me play just a little bit of that trailer here. This is the greatest advance in modern physics since the splitting of the atom. This is serious! He's out to get your house! I believe I made my position to your boss quite clear. He can have our house! We're not dead! Don't you know it's an exclusive club? Only explorers get in here! Not just any kid off the street with a helmet and a pair of goggles! Do you think you got what it takes? 
Yes. All right, if you watch on, uh, there's a lot of explosions and lens flares and uh, crazy camera moves and, uh, you know, all of Michael Bay's tricks thrown in here. This is absolutely phenomenal. It's, if, it's what fantastic. Would happen, what if, would happen if Michael Bay had directed up and what that movie might have looked like with its trailer? It was, it was uh, you know, some of the explosions looked a little fake, but the, the point was driven home. I mean, oh, like, yes. As the trailer like, went there on. There was nonstop uh, <laughs> explosions for like 20 <laughs> seconds in the last half of the trailer. It was awesome. Uh, like they inserted all these explosions in places that didn't make sense and would not have been there, <laughs> but it's just what Michael Bay might have done. Did you watch the very end, Joe? Yeah. What was with that? Like, okay, at the very end of the trailer, like after it's already shown the Spoiler credits alert. and stuff. Go watch yeah. it first and then come back and listen to this, but go ahead, Joe. Okay, at the very end, if, if you if you don't really care, spoiler alert. Yeah, the, at the very end, it shows the scene where uh, Mr. Fredrickson is marrying his wife from the beginning of the film. And it's like, you know, showing the happy couple and all of a sudden she blows up. And then it shows old Mr. Fredrickson sitting there all by himself, very somber. <laughs> like, okay, for no apparent reason, even she just spontaneously combusts. Yeah, I think oh, this is a, a great exercise in showing just how different you can make a film look and feel by taking it and and adding some ominous, sinister music and you know some of those <laughs> bass drops and and uh, you know those those trailer things. You know the you know it just <laughs> it was wonderful. I think it must have been in one of the earlier episodes of our podcast that I talked about another example of this where they t- uh, some YouTubers took the original film of Mary Disney's Mary Poppins and they did the same kind of thing and then made it out to look like a creepy horror film. And, uh, yeah, oh, it's, yeah. It's awesome. I think I remember that Mary Poppins horror cut. Uh, let's see what we have here. I think this is it right here. <laughs> and it's like all great, you know, they've got it in black and white, but not like just black and white, like almost, uh, blue colored you know yeah desaturated sickly looking thing yeah and we're seeing i was seeing now the uh the weather vane kind of twirling back and forth in the dark <laughs> i think we did talk about this i I'm, I'm it's it's barely kind of registering there are going to be whole genres dedicated to these youtube trailers yeah um, i'm putting this one in the show notes as well if i can find that tab in my uh browser here here we go and those are in the show notes. Very cool. Well, you know, another thing that we wanted to talk about, TJ, was the despecialized Star Wars. And uh, the reason for it is because you found a documentary on YouTube, speaking of YouTube videos, where you can see exactly what they did to despecialize this edition for version 2.5 and why you should go seek out and watch the despecialized edition above all else. Yeah, and uh, this is something I've talked about on the show before, actually. I'm, I'm sure you've you've heard me mention the despecialized Star Wars once or, or twice, probably, I'd, I'd say. But um, it's it's really incredible work. that, that uh, It's by a user who goes by the name of Harmy on the internet, his hacker name or hacker alias or whatever you want to call it. I, I don't know if anybody really knows who he is, which is probably for the better, since they would probably be sending all kinds of people after him. If if, if the uh, people in charge of Star Wars knew, you know, where who he was and what he was doing. But in any event, um, he... he 
George Lucas famously, as we've talked about before, he he will he refuses he has refused to release the original theatrical cuts of the original Star Wars trilogy, and he's made numerous changes, and 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 every one of them, every single stinking one, Joe has been for the worse. Every time he tampers with the original Star Wars franchise, the uh, trilogy, it just gets worse. And uh, what I didn't realize, though, based on this video that you know you shared on Movie Byte, was that. The Blu-ray editions don't actually improve the quality of the original. It actually makes, uh, in many cases, the the quality of the film worse. And the same problem happens with the DVD cuts back in 2006. Yeah, it can. Um, what, what the issue is with Blu-ray sometimes is over-sharpening. You know, this this uh, this process that it goes through that's automated, and they don't take the time to properly restore it. You know, that well, does, it's not just sharpening, but also like poor contrast and uh, yes. poor motion blur. Very and stuff poor like color that. correction. Like the color, the color timing is all wonky, um, and they just don't take very good care of the original trilogy for some reason. Lucas, I think, really despises his original work with that original trilogy, even though it's captured the hearts of the um, of the public. And yeah, he does a really poor job. And so what one of the things that they do, as you're alluding to, is they recolor correct and they make it match as closely as they can the original look and feel of the film, but in a much higher quality. In some cases, they've had to, comp- you, know, you know, compose shots from several different sources where they'll take and mat out and they'll rotoscope stuff in order to make it look right. I mean, it's incredible work. And um, I haven't watched this new version yet because this is a continuing work in progress. As they get new sources, they'll update it. And so I downloaded it a couple years ago and watched it and it was fantastic um and now it looks even better i mean and they've got new sources they've got new blu-ray sources they've got you know new high high you know so it's just incredible work and it, it, it looks really good i mean it looks way better even than the theatrical release did all those years ago because we have such better tools and it's just you know what's sad to me joe is that they're not doing this officially and and it still looks so good. And can you imagine if somebody that really loved Star Wars could do it from an official source, from an official you know original film negative, and really transfer it properly and, and do it all over there at Lucasfilm? It would be incredible. What's interesting to me is that this really points out just what a glaring error it is that Hollywood doesn't really take care of remastery, or should I say, just uh, maintaining the quality of their classic films. Uh, growing up, I'd hear things like, oh, well, now the DVDs are a new thing and they have better quality than VHS ever could offer. So you're, you should expect to see the classics uh, remastered and you will get a better film experience from them. Like go back to these black and white films and clean off all the hairs and the dust speck particles and stuff like that. You know, fine tune the audio. It's a great and get theory. get a richer, fuller experience it's, with these classics than ever before. It's a really and great theory, Jeff. It is. It, because it is, it is possible for them to do this but in practice they're not doing it because that's time and money and resources that none of the film studios want to dedicate to you know the archives they don't want to go back and restore films because they can't make money off of that process and this is the thing like i think Par- i have to give mad props to paramount right here because paramount is doing this with the star trek tv series not even a movie you know not not even i mean a movie would be much more minimal investment to i mean it's a bigger thing and a bigger production but it's a one-time thing all these you know tv shows i mean you're talking about uh you know tng had like 200 some episodes and and the original series had 70 some and and if they move on to ds9 which which had as many almost as tng i think or maybe more i don't remember it was seven seasons as well um so i'm i'm, I'm my math is is uh, not is failing me here so seven times 20 is at least 140 
episodes actually of of tng uh and and there was most seasons had more than 20 i think maybe all of them did so i'm just giving you the minimal my point is they're um they're really doing a great job of restoring these they're going back to the original 35 millimeter negatives and restoring and remastering these in a really great way and they're trying to stick to the original as much as possible and only replacing like a phaser shot with a digital phaser effect when the original is just not usable and for the most part they want to make it look like it did only in really high quality and that's what we're missing with a lot of this stuff and in this case with george lucas and and, and lucasfilm and, and and all this that's what we're really really missing so so uh, in the video here on youtube it only talks about the original star wars film the first episode four yes. do we have a despecialized version for the empire strikes back there and are the de- Return of the jedi there are despecialized versions of all, all the original trilogy um there all three of them were originally done uh, and they were called despecialized version 1.0 the other two are still at version 1.0 i know they have plans to go back and do a, an updated version for those as well from the newer sources and to really you know beef it up but uh, for right now, the you know the, you can get these specialized versions of all the Star Wars films. The most recent updated is uh, the uh, Episode Four, or as it was originally called, just Star Wars. Mm. So. Well, I'm definitely going to get my hands on these then, because n- now I understand it. Because when I had heard that there were some uh, fans that were just trying to do their best to put together their preferred cuts that would despecialize, it didn't sound like what I what it actually is. It sounded like they just wanted to make it look ugly. That, you know, like not only would we cut out all the added CG stuff, but we would actually return to something that was essentially like a camcorder pointed up at the big screen of an original <laughs> shoot of something from the 70s. And that, that's what despecialized sounded like to me. It sounded like an ugly bootlegged copy. But that's not really what they're tr- trying to do. They're trying to take the original film or the closest thing they can get to it and make it worthy of Blu-ray quality. That is cool. Yes. And that I will support. This this link will also be in the show notes, and I highly recommend that you take the 10 minutes to watch this video. It's fantastic work that they're doing. And I really love, like, anywhere you look for the official sources for this, they say, please don't download this if you don't own the Star Wars Blu-rays. We don't want to get in trouble for this. We don't want to deprive the studios of their money because, you know, we want them to make money on it so they'll continue to produce good things, and we don't want to get in trouble. Please don't download this unless you own a copy of Star Wars. So they're really trying to do it right, I, I feel. So I'm um, absolutely. Yeah. And most of us own like three or four copies. So <laughs> of course, of we course. can download this like three or four times. That's right. Speaking well, of star Wars. Absolutely. Yes. Let's move on. You have a uh, slash film post here as well in the show notes. Uh, more star Wars episode seven villain rumors revealed a couple weeks back. A hot rumor hit the internet explaining how the star Wars episode seven villain could rewrite star Wars franchise history. Well, a new report adds more heat to the fire. Learn more about the new Star Wars Episode Seven villain rumors after the jump. Oh, I Warning hate that possible phrase. spoilers obviously ahead. Yeah, and we're calling spoiler warning, uh, you know, here on this podcast as well. Although my point in talking about this is how stupid this is, and there is no way that this is true. No way at all. Uh, do you think that we should let the cat out of the bag? <sighs> Let's just say this is big news, people. If this were possibly true, it's not. It would there's no absolutely way. Absolutely, no way. Train wreck. So, the so future. yeah, it, 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 yeah. There's no way that it's it's true. First of all, the report comes from Latino Review, which has a pretty spotty track record for these sorts of things. Um, and let's just say, let's not completely spoil it. Let's just say that uh, they're talking about bringing back a pretty big villain who uh, is dead. You can take your guesses. There's at least three that that are possible when I say that. 
And when we say a really big villain that is dead that could come back, we're talking about your least favorite. The one that you would like to see come back the least would be the one who comes back. I don't know about that. I just yes. think that bringing him back would be really stupid. And and you know, there's they're they're talking about all the possibilities of how it could actually work with the continuity of the original trilogy and blah blah blah. And it just it's so stupid. It's so dumb. There is there is a I I I say this is not possible at all. I just don't think that this would happen. So wait a minute. What three were you thinking about, TJ? We were we have the Emperor, we have Vader, and were you thinking of Darth Maul? Um, I, I guess there really are only two. Um, okay, well, but there, there, there is Darth Maul, and there is Darth well, whatever his name. Yeah, was. if you Dooku, open it up, if you open it up to the uh, the the original, which no, but nothing. I guess nothing in here explicitly says it wouldn't. Okay, whatever. <laughs> Basically, the problem here is is that in any event that they want to bring back a dead villain, nobody wants to see that. No, I I think there's places for them to go. Um, are you telling me that there's nobody who could take up the mantle of the Sith left in the universe? I, I, I think not. No, 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 no. Yeah. I mean, if they want to have more Sith, all the more power to them, go right ahead. I don't know how they're going to do it because there's no one to introduce the ways of the Sith to a new mentor or a new trainee or whatever, because like they kind of ended the line according to return of the Jedi, uh, I just don't know how they could do it, but I, I can see how maybe there would be a new crop of Sith. I just don't know how they would pull it off. Well, I, I mean, my impression, again, if you're if you're using the prequels at all, my impression would be that there would be some that had been possibly waiting in the wings. Not that they were Sith yet or really, but but they were kind of waiting in the wings to kind of tr- come up and, and rise up, maybe. who? I, I don't know. Mm, that's just, a bad idea, too. I don't know. I think there's a lot of other places that they could go, and frankly, I think this rumor sounds completely idiotic, and there's just no way that it's real. But it's it's a Star Wars rumor, so we have to talk about it. Now, what is the running title for this film? A long forgotten threat, or something like that. Uh, I no no, no official title has been announced. Okay, good. I really I don't even like the sound of that horrible subtitle. A long forgotten threat is, or whatever that implies that was tossed around the interwebs was just irking me because I, I, I'd, I'd like to believe that there are new challenges for Luke and Leia and Han to face, not old ones, you know, that are like cropped up like, hey, you remember me, that person you didn't kill back there on Hoth? Well, I'm a bad uh, snow speeding stormtrooper that like grew old and learned the ways of the evil force. And so now I'm coming to get you, Luke Skywalker. Oh, and I'm going to get you now. You know, I don't know what. Well, what are we even saying? This is this is crazy. Let's see. This site, I hate the this this uh, site, ten months ago claims, and I'm, it's bringing back a memory now. I haven't heard much about it since then. I think I think it was a rumor. I don't think it was ever official. But they they were claiming that the working title was Star Wars Seven: A New Dawn. Well, that doesn't do anything for anyone either. That might be worse than the subtitle I had heard. Yeah, I, I, and I don't think it was ever confirmed. I don't think that that's ever been come out of Disney, so it's not official until it actually happens. Uh, and that oh, was well. 10 months ago, and nobody's talking about it anymore. So That's like said, right. Yeah. Dumb rumors. Why do they do this to us, TJ? Somebody could probably come out with a rumor mill tabloid just dedicated to Star Wars right now, and it would sell like hotcakes somewhere. It could make a lot of Google Ads revenue. <laughs> probably, probably so, and I'm sure there are people doing it. So, anyway, I think we should move on to our review of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. 
Surveillance is showing heavy foot clan activity. They're taking hostages. Let's rock and roll. talking about like shadows in the night completely unseen that was from the trailer for teenage mutant ninja turtles uh it was released on august the 8th 2014 it had a budget of 125 million opening weekend it brought in 65.5 million domestically the current worldwide gross is 240 million uh, Rotten Tomatoes critical acclaim says that neither entertaining enough to recommend or, nor t- remarkably awful, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles may bear the distinction of being the dullest movie ever made about talking bipedal reptiles. I hope we can dispel that theory for somebody. Director Jonathan Liebsman, writers Josh Applebaum, Andre uh, Nemec, Evan Dougherty, and the original comic and characters by Peter Laird and Kevin Eastman. The stars of this film are Megan Fox as April O'Neil, Will Arnett as Vernon Fenwick, William Fitcher as Eric Sachs, uh, Alan Richson as uh, Raphael, Noel, Noel Fisher, uh, Noel Fisher as, I guess it's Noel. This just sounds like a girl's no, name. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. yeah, it's spelled like Noel. Yeah. Noel Fisher as Michelangelo, Pete Plazek, Plaz, Plaz, Plazek as Leonardo, Johnny Knoxville as Leonardo's voice, Jeremy Howard as Donatello, Danny Woodburn as Splinter, but Tony Shalhoub does Splinter's voice, uh, Toharu Masamuni as Shredder, and Whoopi Goldberg as Bernadette Thompson. Uh, the composer was Brian Tyler. Hang on a minute, I have to pull up. I, I just saw a tweet come in from Chad. Uh, I believe he was telling me about the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles score he says the score is okay nothing groundbreaking a decent theme but it's too serious overall for teenage mutant ninja turtles i wish it was more fun so that's from chad hopkins the departed uh previous co-host of the podcast that's and i agree he, with complete with, with completely with chad you want to talk about the the score while we're at it you mean the storyline or well the orchestral the oh score. yeah i mean it was fine i kind of agree with with chad although i didn't i didn't i, I don't know i i agree that it was uh what did he say it was uh too serious there's nothing groundbreaking it was a decent theme i don't agree that it was too serious i thought it was fine it worked fine uh brian tyler has done other uh comic book films such as iron man 3 thor the dark world and then he's done stuff like fast five and the expendables i thought it was well, serviceable it in and of itself, it feels like a decent orchestral soundtrack. The problem with it, though, is that in the context, it doesn't seem to match the spirit of the turtles, if you ask me. So the music as a whole, like the entire soundtrack, was orchestral throughout, which I found to be refreshing and out of place at the same time. Orchestral music has its place, but considering that this is the Ninja Turtles and you know their conceit, I was expecting more pop culture-driven music, or at least a soundtrack with some percussion and hard rock every now and then, but there wasn't. I'm trying to find the original, because um, even though I'm, I was never really into Turtles, I recognize the theme so well. Oh, everybody knows it, like forwards and backwards. Yeah, and I get what Chad is saying. Because that's certainly more fun. It, it doesn't have that seriousness. But again, this is a reboot of a real of a real live action film where it's never done well as live action because they've kept it too silly, like the cartoon. 
Um, yeah, I guess so. Well, I think there's other problems with it besides that, but uh, yeah. we'll but get to that after the storyline. That that theme was was never present at all in the uh, in the score, as far as I remember, which is disappointing because because oh, yeah? even not as a Turtles fan, I recognize that theme anywhere. Yeah, they should have like had it playing at least in the credits or something. Like uh, Michelangelo is the Goofy Turtle, and I could have totally seen him like doing his own little musical ditty theme. Like you know, like when he was going off to like fight the bad guys, I could see him like going into his own musical theme and and like singing that song, and the other turtles looking at him funny or something. Oh, anyway, yeah, that's neither here nor there. You want to tell us about the story? Yes. So April O'Neil is uh, played by Megan Fox. And April O'Neil is striving to get her news broadcasting reporter career to be taken seriously. But because she's just another pretty face on television, no one from Channel 6 Action News in New York City will give her the credibility she feels entitled to. Finally, she, she determines to find the story of a lifetime. And so April starts trailing the Wicked Foot Clan a group of criminals and terrorists that are taking control of New York City in secret and in the shadows. But little did April know that the band of mutant brother turtles who dwell in the sewers are taking it upon themselves to destroy the Foot Clan and its formidable ninja leader, Shredder. April and the turtles are forced to depend on each other if they are to unravel the Foot Clan's sinister plans and stop a deadly pathogen from killing every New Yorker right Right there at the end, TJ, I was totally expecting Spider-Man to swing in and like put his webbing all over the top of the tower <laughs> to hold it together in place so that the pathogen would not turn everybody into crocodiles. Why is that? Because isn't that like the plot of at least two and a half Spider-Man movies? I where suppose there's so, There's a yeah. deadly pathogen <laughs> going to be spread in the air. Or, or wait a minute. I, I, I figured it out. That was the story of... Well, bits and pieces of it came from The Amazing Spider-Man 2, the original first Sam Raimi Spider-Man, then the um, the first Amazing Spider-Man, as well as Batman Begins. So all of them involve like a deadly pathogen that should be released in the city that should turn people into mutants or kill them or cause fear to strike in them so that the, the terrorists can take advantage of the situation, wreak havoc, kill people, make money, and get away like bad guys and thugs. So is this it? Is this the review? We've moved on from the storyline. He sort of just flowed right into it. Oh, you know, I'm just like elaborating on the storyline. <laughs> I'm, I'm referring to its roots. I'm talking about where this storyline came from. It, its ancestors are Batman Begins, Amazing Spider-Man Parts 1 and 2, and taking some inspiration from Sam Raimi's Spider-Man franchise as well. I'm sure that there are a dozen other action movies that allude to deadly pathogens being spread through the air above New York City. Yeah. And that we're just overlooking. I mean, I thought it worked fine. I mean, because look, look at the origins of, of of the of the turtles. I mean, like, look at the TV show. It's always goofy and silly, and you know, uh, Shredder is always doing something crazy. Like his plots never make any sense, and that's fine. So I I didn't have any. You know, it was fine. It could. You're, I mean, you're right. It could have done with a better story uh, storyline, but it was fine. Well, speaking of the villains like Shredder, I have nothing positive to say. The, the performance of William, what's his name, Fickner, Fitchner, Fitch, Fit, whatever. Uh, I guess we <laughs> we should just like give up trying to pronounce these names. As Eric Sachs, you mean? Yes, See, Eric, would... the character of Eric Sachs, he was grossly flat, and the ninja villain Shredder was straight out of the cartoon show, which means he was no better or worse than an evildoer from Power Rangers. 
yeah, I, I found them fine, and they weren't really the focus of the film, so I thought it was fine. I think, though, before we really get into the review, we should talk about, uh, I mean, I think it's fair because this is a reboot of a, of a, of a franchise that's been pretty much driven into the ground. Yeah, we can talk about our history with the Turtles. I, I have a feeling, from if I remember correctly, you have more history with them than I do. Just a tad. So, so why don't you why don't you start and tell us kind of? Your- oh, you want to talk talk about my history with the franchise? Yeah. Okay. Cool. Well, um, uh, yeah, that's right. You talked about a little bit of your backstory with Turtle Turtles in your life in your written review. That's correct. Okay. So, um, I don't feel awkward at all. Um, when I was a child. I picked up on the musical theme pretty quickly. Like every kid had heard the theme. Of course. All the kids in school. You had seen bits of the TV show on TV sets in the mall. You watched some on Saturday mornings and throughout the week with reruns. The problem with the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles was that it was solely made for kids. Like it was of that generation where the G.I. Joes and Transformers and the Ninja Turtles just rocked the cartoons for the kids on Saturday mornings. Like that, that was the era. There weren't better cartoons really. And so they were all about the merchandising. You had lots of teenage mutant Ninja turtle merchandise and the toys were not half bad. And uh, considering how novel things like the transformers and the Ninja turtles were they they were so quirky that they attracted a lot of the, the kids that were into them. So, a lot of the reason that people got into them was simply for their quirks. Um, if you think about it, like turtles are not turtles are not so cool that they should be associated with ninjas. But this series conceit is that yes, we're going to make this work, and so they they make it work. And um, like I said, it predates things like Power Rangers, which I think got a lot of inspiration from things like the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. But um, obviously did some things better for its time for kids' television shows. I actually was never allowed to watch the series from day to day or week to week. There was, was I, interestingly. Yeah, but my parents' thing about it was that they thought that there was some like witchcraft and stuff going on in the TV show. <laughs> and they didn't really know what made the turtles into mutants and what that meant. Like my parents were always very skeptical about witchcraft and sci-fi things because they just didn't understand them and they didn't have a point of reference and nobody really explained them to them. Yeah, so there was a, yeah. just in, just in way of, of your, what you're saying there, there was a general uneasiness about, uh, superheroes, uh, in my household as well. And, and we've all well gotten over that by now. My, my, you know, my, my family is well over that problem. <laughs> now my older brother, he was really into the turtles for a little while but like I said, because my parents were just not into them, they never let us get into the toys. Uh, one particular time, there was a yard sale in the neighborhood, and they were practically selling all the figures for like a quarter each. So under a weak moment, my mom let us buy all of them for a few bucks. But then when my dad got home, he said that we could keep them. So. Um, that was like the last straw for me. I was like, no, trying to like the Ninja Turtles is too painful for me. I'm not going to go back here again. So when we had to part ways with those toys, I was too broken hearted to consider going back to them again. The Turtles are an interesting phenomenon because um, all, all my friends were like, I'd say most of my friends were really into him. I, I wasn't really. There was uh, – I mean, I wasn't allowed to watch them all the time. We watched them sometimes, and uh, that may have contributed to it, although I just don't remember really, really getting into it. But it's it's hard to find anybody our age or younger who does not know who the Ninja Turtles are. 
Everybody knows who the Ninja Turtles are. Most people our age and in that general age range uh, really love them. Uh, it was I was five years old when the series premiered. So there was the animated series that lasted from 1987 to 1996, and each season had varying different amounts of episodes. One season had like 40 episodes in it, like and it just like played all year or whatever. So. Um, I think that was season two, if I remember right. So 1987 through 1996 is the animated series. At the same time, uh, for a couple of years, there was an anime series that uh, went to Japan. Then there was the live action series from uh, 1997 through 1998. Uh, there was a second animated series from 2003 to th- uh, through 2009. I found some episodes of that on YouTube, and I actually really liked the look of that. I, I think I liked it even better than the first run of that show. Uh, and then there's a third animated series from 2012 and ongoing right now, and it looks absolutely dreadful. It's terrible CGI. It's it's not well produced, and it's just awful. Uh, so, and then there's been several feature films. Uh, they've appeared in five feature films, according to Wikipedia. The first three are live action features produced in the early 1990s: uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 1990, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles uh, 2, The Secret of the Ooze 1991, uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 3 1993. Uh, and, uh, the fourth film is a CGI animated film simply titled TMNT released in 2007. Uh, so that is, I mean, they've just basically run this franchise into the ground with varying degrees of success. The, the, the live action films have never been successful. So that's kind of where we're at with, with, before we come into this, uh, Michael Bay produced, uh, Jonathan Leap's, what was his name? I don't have it right in front of me. Uh, Jonathan Liebsman directed film. So for what it is worth, the creators, what they have here was mostly not, you cannot call this original content, but I completely understand why it feels very creative and why it's attracted a lot of fandom. And I can understand why, again, as, as children, the original series was really compelling. Some of the best original video games for the original Nintendo and Sega Genesis or Sega Master or whatever were Ninja Turtle games. I really so, love to play the NES uh, Ninja Turtles game. Yeah, I did as well. Some of my friends up in North Carolina had copies of the original NES games. And so that, that was something really cool back in the day when there just weren't that many awesome games. And uh, because of all the characters having the different um, fighting moves and weapons, it added a lot to the game because it wasn't all the same how Mario, all he can do is jump and and duck, you know. Um, So, yeah, it was cool having the different brothers with their different skills. And you could, you know, everybody had their favorites, right? So maybe you liked the hothead, so you preferred Raphael. Maybe you were in for the comedy, so you preferred Michelangelo. Right. And I know a lot of people who picked their favorites like that. Yeah, I never really got that far. Um, I couldn't tell you what the different uh, distinctives were of the different turtles. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I mean, it's easy to see how people could get into it because I get, I get nerdy about that with other things. So it was, it, it's, not, it's hard, not hard to imagine. Yeah, sure. Um, <clears throat> I think we can agree that uh, Shredder um, is probably the, uh, the weakest aspect of this film. Uh, he is essentially, even though there are some things that I enjoyed about this, he is essentially the comic or, or the uh, TV show comic character Shredder with an upgrade of armor. Yeah, and who we're talking about is actually like the supervillain of the movie, and he is the weakest link, um, all things considered. It seems like he should have paid off better, uh, but I understand what they were trying to do. They they didn't they, they wanted to make him very mysterious and so what they do is that you don't ever really get to see his face very well except for in the shadows 
And then whenever he is around and he's in action, he's got this super metal armor suit that is um, nothing especially special except that it has an excessive amount of uh, knives and swords and body armor uh, for practical purposes. It, it looks very cumbersome. It doesn't all, look like something a ninja yeah. would ever want to wear and use. All magnetized can't hardly move too. around. All, all the stuff will come back to him after he throws it. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Perfectly. Like the magnets let him throw the swords out like boomerangs and under no circumstance will they not come right back into their holsters on his sleeves unless he just doesn't want them to come back to him. They can be stuck, you know, 10 inches into a concrete wall. And if he turns on his magnets and he's 300 feet away, they'll come right to him without any problems. There was one point at which Shredder said, uh, you know, what what was it? He said, he's like, he's like, uh, then capture and kill some innocents if you have to, or whatever. It's like, um, no one in the, no one in the real world or, or even usually in the, in the comic world uh, thinks of themselves as the bad guy. And he never, no one ever says use innocence for our evil dastardly plan. Uh, but, but Shredder does. And I actually kind of like that. Like it, it, it doesn't, it's like, you know what guys, this is a, this is a silly cartoon and, you know, adaptation and we're not taking ourselves too seriously. I actually kind of enjoyed that. Well, while you're bringing it up, TJ, that was actually one of the things I felt kind of torn about because this film is really sticking to its roots. And that's something that I think a lot of the fans would really like to see other franchises do. They'll sure. like you, you take the Transformers and you adapt it to screen. Don't uh, completely negate the source material like my, Michael Bay has. Uh, I think a lot more people would like to see uh, more, m- many more characteristics taken from the TV show. So for, for what it's worth, um, this movie is like a cartoon series launching its pilot. And so it felt as though there wasn't real character development here. They, they have great characters set up, but not good character development. They, they, the characters are in the same frame of mind at the beginning and end of the film as they were at the start. You know, like they were just trying to create the pilot of a show we're trying to establish characters so that you know that these are the good guys, these are the bad guys, and why you watch this show is for the incredible um, uh, boxed-in characterizations. The turtles are essentially the same at the start and the end. They have the same motivations, as does April, and even the comic relief, Vernon. Like He basically has the same motivations. He, nobody has a, a story arc here except for Raphael, really. But what's funny about Raphael is that he is perhaps one of the most underused of all the characters, yeah. even though he showed some progression. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if I completely agree with that, because I feel like the, the film did evolve them somewhat, and it is introducing us to these characters and trying to you know make us understand who they are. And we did watch them in the flashbacks uh, grow up from teenage into teenage mutant Ninja Turtles. Um, I, I don't know. I, I didn't have as much of a problem with that as it sounds like you might have done, but um, I, I, I kind of get what you're saying, I suppose. Um, but you know, on the other side of the coin here, I wanted to uh, go back to what I was saying about character setup. And this is something that I think a lot of films suffer from in general. They're not really good at establishing their characters in act one, or if they, they do establish them very well, it feels like they're a bit too cliche in how they introduce their characters. Like they go how back so? to the same film tropes over and over and over again. Um, it's just bad filmmaking director technique i think usually let me give me an example i don't know what you're referring to um you know one of the largest complaints of like chick flick movies is how all of them basically start the same way it's a it's a it's the leading female lead basically narrating the film 
And it may be that she's talking to you because you're a supposed distant friend that she has a pen pal with, or you are um, her journal did and April, you are hearing her journal. Did April narrate the beginning of the film? I don't no, remember no, no, that. No, no, I'm just, I, I, no, no, no. I, I think you misunderstood me. I'm talking about the cliches of films that often do a poor execution of ch- setting up the characters in act one. Hmm. And this film doesn't do that. It was actually really good. That's my point. Oh, okay. This is one of my lines. I did misunderstand what you were saying. Yeah, no, I was going to say, I, I completely love the way this film opened up. Yeah, there is a surprising amount of character setup. Although the turtles and the humans are mostly two-dimensional action figures that are true to the essence and limits of their cartoon forms, the film introduces all the characters so well that I knew that this film was trying hard to overcome what you went through uh with your expectations about the film. Um, This one was trying to rise above it. So it was trying to lay the groundwork for you and wipe the slate clean from any preconceived notions you may have with its rather decent character setups. Yeah. And I, I, uh, speaking of the opening of the film, uh, what did you think of the comic character or comic book type of opening thing? I, I loved that. Uh, it was pretty good. Like, w- were the Ninja Turtles originally from comic books? Yes. I assume so, but In I don't know In 1984, so. the first comic came out before the TV show ever became a thing. And that, you know, the TV show comes from the comic books. So, uh, yeah. I, and I really enjoyed that that setup. It was it was very art, uh, artistically done, uh, and it, it was very nice. I, I enjoyed, kind of in the vein that you're saying, how they didn't feel the need. Like, some people were complaining, we came to see Ninja Turtles, and we had to wait almost to the second act before we really saw any Ninja Turtles. I'm like... No, I really liked the reveal. Like, like they really kind of teased it, and it, it didn't feel the need to rush the film. Like, I expected this film to be completely feel completely rushed, and yet feel way too long because Michael Bay was within uh, you know a hundred miles of it. But it didn't. It, it it took its time, and yet it was not even. I don't even think it was. Runtime was two hours, was it? No, uh, surely not. One hundred one like- minutes. So yeah, it was uh, less than two hours. And that was actually probably in its favor, TJ, because some oh, of the I action did. sequences were lengthy and not mind-numbing, but they, they were borderline pushing what Michael Bay does when he just ha- he keeps going no. and going and going. No, they, I mean, I agree that they were, they were pushing a little bit higher than I might have liked, but they were nowhere near what Michael Bay does, and it was fine, and the movie did not feel overlong because it wasn't, and that was, it was a, definitely in its favor. Um, speaking of the, I guess the, the overall production values, um, it almost feels ridiculous to even mention them because we're talking about, you know, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and it doesn't feel like a film worthy to, you know, to reference its, um, film craft aspects. But since we have come to expect action flicks and cartoon action film adaptations to have impressive computer animation standards, um, for what it is worth, this Turtles film is surprisingly realistic in its appearance. Apart from the absolute amusing physicality of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and their leader, the Rat, which uh, some I'm sure you know can appreciate. I mean, like everything as a whole felt very realistic. This looked like it was a film done on location in New York with 99% real sets and real props, i.e. away from green screens. It just—it seemed rather flawless in in the details. It really did. We're we're definitely getting to a point with CGI where it's it's really. I know we talk about this all the time, but I'm just still so stunned by how un uh by, by how 
I don't notice how unreal it is. Like, it really does look real. Um, these turtles, even though there's nothing like them in the world, they felt, and, and that's even harder to do, right? When there is nothing like this, your mind immediately assumes it's fake. And yet, I didn't get much of a sense except for one point in the film where the, the young turtles before they became teenagers are seeing, you know, people dancing in the club across the street. And then, uh, was it Donatello, I think, or it might have been Leonardo? He does this, uh, you know, this crazy weird dancing stuff that just didn't look real. Other than that, it was very real. I thought yeah. it was very well done, and that and that's part of the goofiness of it, right? Though, because you know what you're what, you know seeing with your eyes is completely unreal, and so part of you feels like you're going to write it off as unreal. But then at the same time, you have to remember what kind of impression a film like this would make on you if you were a child again, and you have to acknowledge, like, wow, this would blow my imagination. I would think somewhere my, you know, that, that, you know, my parents and all the adults everywhere were lying to me that, you know, no, Ninja Mutant Turtles must exist. I saw them in this movie and they totally look real. Their eye movements, the way they move, their muscle mass moves, um, their physicality was very impressive. It seemed like they had real muscle and bone and uh, a real surface tissue about them. Yeah, definitely. Uh, It's a very fascinating age of, of filmmaking that we live in. And as far as that goes. Um, and one can argue, one can make an argument that there was something more genuine and real when we were using, you know, real materials and, 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 uh, models and, and these sorts of things. But in many ways, this is, uh, this is a, you know, a, a different and better way to do it in many ways. Uh, mm. and, and I, I, yeah, I really enjoyed it. It was, it was a lot of fun. You know, um, going back to the turtles again for a second, you know, um, this is something that we, I think we keep returning to is how consistent this film is with the source material. Yes. The turtles felt exactly like their cartoon characters. They just had way better animation than they had in the eighties. Right. Yes. And that said, they offered lots of entertainment value more than I was actually expecting. Like those other films that have happened over the years for the Ninja Turtles. I, I just thought, you know, there is no way that this is, could ever rise above the source material that it would ever um, be more than just Hollywood trying to shovel some junk on us to make more money. But they had a sufficient amount of time on screen. Uh, their jokes were good. The, the, the delivery of their crime fighting action was really good. And for what it was worth in the emotion of the moment, it was amusing. It was, uh, you know, I mean like, Hey, I'm an adult and I know all this was absolutely ridiculous and somewhat shallow, but it was cool yeah what it was worth i i completely agree um i i I enjoyed myself far more than i thought i would um i i really expected to hate this film and and surprisingly i didn't um and and speaking of that i mean one of the reasons i expected to hate this film was because megan fox was in it and i have traditionally not liked anything she's been in particularly because she's been in it at least that's the way i've perceived it um, normally, Joe, and I, I'm sure you'd agree with me, there's usually only one reason why Megan Fox is cast in anything, as far as I can tell. Uh, oh, do tell. And and that is because of her sex appeal. Um, her appeal to the young teenage males. Um, and I didn't detect any of that in this film. I, I You know, she wasn't ever provocatively oh, dressed. Oh, come on. No, you, seriously, you think to... about it. Well, I... Yeah, seriously, think about it. Remember Vernon Fenwick, who was the comic relief. He is the cameraman that April O'Neil has a ongoing friendship with. 
And well, she sure. needs him oftentimes to like, carry, you know, get her around town in her, his van. Yes. The guy kept ogling her. He, he kept uh, on making jokes He had about a crush it. on her, but that, that, I mean, that could have been with any character. I don't know. No, I mean, normally, I mean, just think of Megan Fox and the Transformers and, and how on display, uh, she was. Oh, yeah. Was. Th- this, they played that way down for this film. Yes. That's my point. Yeah. And, it was played way down. And for whatever reason. Uh, again, maybe this plays into it. Maybe because uh, they weren't trying to put her on display, her acting ability bubbled to the top. Or maybe she's taken an acting lesson or two uh, since the Transformers or any other <laughs> film that I've seen her in. But I felt like she actually did okay. Like, I didn't hate every scene that she was in. I don't know. Okay, so you didn't hate it, but would you say it was good? Well, I wouldn't say it's Oscar-worthy, but I would say it's fine. It was fine. Really? I guess that's what I'm saying. Yeah. And how would you say it compared to like um, Eric Sachs' character? Because as a whole, I I just felt like he was absolutely deadpan and uh, emotionless until like the last part of the film when he started acting like a madman. I mean, I thought that was part of his character. I thought that was fine. I I, I didn't have any trouble with Eric Sachs either. I know you say you did. I'm I'm interested to hear more about that. Uh, I mean, I thought that the the what you're calling flatness was just kind of the way his character was. He was in control and he had everything under control as far as he knew. And and it was fine. Well, I'll get back to Megan Fox's character in a second because she, she is the central character. The whole movie is really her story, but uh, going back to the villain just for a second, um, William Fichtner. That's what it's weirdly. This this is a strangely spelled. And this is a big actor. We should know how to pronounce his name. Fichtner. Um, but the character know. he plays at the beginning, you you get the impression that he's just like a very wealthy businessman that has a significant role alongside of the politicians in New York City to try and make the world a better place. Then later on, they kind of reveal how he has some involvement with science research labs, and you're not exactly sure what the background is there. But then later on, you learn more through April O'Neil when she's covering backstory and she's remembering things from her childhood that her father and Eric Sachs were colleagues. They were both scientists and presumably Eric Sachs wasn't a wealthy man. Then he was just another scientist. And between the events that happened in her childhood and the events in this movie, the guy became a very wealthy businessman in New York city. And we don't know why. But then later on, it's revealed that he is kind of creepy. Like he starts, you know, trying to give advice to April O'Neil and give her some insights when he's pretending to be helpful to her. And you get the impression that he's very knowledgeable about things like, uh, what do they call it? Ninjutsu. And (laughs) he knows the history of Japan. He grew up in Japan. And so presumably he's very knowledgeable about Japanese culture and the ways of the Foot Clan. Because the you know the Foot Clan is led by um, Shredder, who is the you know the Japanese villain in New York City that is taking the city by storm. You know, like nobody can stop him, and he's he's somehow in league with politicians, the cops, and everything else. Uh, we didn't know exactly what Eric Sachs' involvement was there until eventually this the whole cat is out of the bag when Eric and Shredder. Over a few lines near the latter half of the second act, they basically just tell the audience exactly what their plan is and where they have come from and what they're up to and why they're maniacal. They say, uh, you know, in so many words, maniacal laugh. I am going to do something crazy that's going to kill lots of people for money, you know, (laughs) and that, that just really disappointed me because 
Eric Sachs actually was genuinely doing some things that seemed to be good for New York. And supposedly he was just buying, biding his time till he could take real advantage of New York City and make a huge amount of money by trying to threaten the world with a pathogen and then offer a cure. But it was confused, right? Like surely the guy wouldn't have been just biding his time all these years until he got the opportunity to do the one thing, the only evil strategy he had ever come up with. So I, I, you know, like, again, I just felt like he was poorly written and when he was acted out, it didn't feel like William had enough to work with. Joe, this is a cartoon that has been adapted to real life. You are overthinking it. I know, but see, that's the thing. Like you have to have some responsibility for the story because sure. poured a lot of money into it. Sure. I would have no. never gone out to buy the original cartoon show to be entertained by that. So I, I have higher expectations for a, a blockbuster sized film. I don't care what the source material. Yeah. And you know, I'm usually the last person to say, Oh, it was just a cartoon movie. They should just dumb it down. But at the same time, like you do have to consider the source material. And I feel like you're just massively overthinking it. Yeah. I, I well, I know I am master. What did you massively. say? Massively. I am masterfully overthinking it because <laughs> of great films like guardians of the galaxy, because now we have seen what you can do with a lackluster comic book from, you know, the past. You, you can do a heck of a lot on screen yeah. with characters nobody saw any hope for. It's true. It's true. And I, I'm not going to say everything has to be compared to Guardians of the Galaxy from now on. I'm just saying, you know what I mean. Like, in your heart of heart, there's a reason, reason why you're not going to give this a huge star rating because some things were obviously disappointing. And I think as a whole, for me, one of those things was the villains and they really brought the film down a few, a uh, few stars. Okay. Well, I have two things that brought the film down a couple of stars for me and it wasn't the villains. One of them was splinter. Um, I enjoyed the ninja rat as a, as a character. Um, I mean, he looked great. I, I really liked the, um, reconceptualization of the character. Um, but his backstory has been altered. I don't know if you remember his backstory from the uh, cartoon, but it's like it's in the opening sequence of the cartoon where he was a man and the mutagen turned him into a rat because that was the last animal he had handled. He had been in the sewers with the rats when he came in contact with the mutagen and he became Nobody would a rat. have ever believed that, TJ. <laughs> right, where they can believe that the mutagen turned a little mousy mouse thing into a big rat uh, or whatever. Whatever. <laughs> I, I, I just I, I don't understand why they had to change it and and so the reason that splinter is the sensei now uh is not because he was a man who was a ninja and who had studied the arts and became a rat but he's a sensei because he mutated faster and he picked up a book and read it and now he's the ninja i mean and now he's the sensei it's lame it's it's really lame yeah it's really lame because of what you just said and in case you didn't understand that people think about it this was a lab rat that wound up with the turtles in the sewer in the in the sewer, he mutated into a humanoid, five foot tall, rat like being that decided that he would dub himself the father of the turtles and protect them and raise them. When they mutated into baby humanoid turtles, uh, this is this, TJ. Give me a second here. This is one of the more peculiar facets of the turtle franchise. Uh, this is a problem, like you say. You know, if you want to make cross comparisons to the cartoons, I, I, I won't for just a second. Just looking at the film on its own. Uh, Splinter is an altruistic and wise mutant 
that seems to unlock all the mysteries of life. Right. Right when the good guys need him to. Of course. And there is little, ex- yeah, and there's little explaining where his greatness comes from. So even though he's one of, uh, uh, one of the more compelling parts of the story, yes, he's very quirky, but he's also compelling the way he was, he was executed. He's also one of the freakiest aspects of the film. And he's, he kind of looks like, a, did you think about what he kind of resembles in the film? I, I don't know. I like the way he looked. I don't know what he okay. resembled. It was okay. The way he looked was okay, but instantly it brought a couple of things to mind. One of them was it brought to mind the the giant rodents in The Princess Bride. R-O-U-S's. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then it also brought to mind uh, like the creatures in that horrible Super Mario Brothers film back in the 90s. <laughs> and, and, and it also... Just the way that Splinter also was like moving around and stuff kind of reminded me of Sebulba from The Phantom Menace. No, it kind of no. did. Like, I just, I no, didn't say, no, 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 I did not say they look alike. Stop. I'm just saying it, Stop it. was there. <sighs> yeah. I, I, how do we get this podcast back on track? You brought up the prequels again. I don't know. Sebulba. Um, oh my gosh. I, I do believe what in a, bu- turtles. What a bunch do. of poodoo. <laughs> oh, TJ, no, you went there. TJ. <laughs> no. I would have never. Uh, okay, we've gone off the rails. Movies, TJ. <clears throat> All right, let's see if we can pick this train up and put it back yes, on the rails. Let's get back to some likes. Okay. Actually, I, I had a couple more things to talk about. If you remember, I said there was a couple of things um, okay, on, the, on, the, on the dislikes. The other thing is this whole fate thing. Um, in in the, the source material, in the cartoon, in the comics, as far as I know, uh, April O'Neil meets the turtles when they save her. And then that's their first association, and they go on from there and develop this, you know, working relationship or whatever. Um, in the film, that's not good enough because, duh, this is a big, gigantic blockbuster and everything has to be intertwined and we got to weave it all together, right? Well, they they wove it together in a way that's just like, what? It, it's just too convenient, right? It's just too much, Um so it's not enough that April meets the turtles because they save her from the danger. Come to find out, the turtles had been her pets, and the rat, and the rat had been her pet, and her dad created the mutagen that turned them into the thing, and, and all this fate stuff, and it's all intertwined, and it's all of a tapestry, you see. And I just, I, I find it a little bit tedious. Like the the turtles could have been, in, in the source material, the turtles could have been any turtle. April O'Neil could have been any girl, and you know, it's 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 just grading that they have to every blockbuster it has to be intertwined in this uh way you you know what i'm saying am i I making any sense oh absolutely but at the same time i I don't know that i necessarily care per se because for the sake of the movie i did i knew that they were going to make some changes from the original show i mean it goes without saying if they told you essentially a live action version of the first three episodes of season one of the original ninja turtles film I mean, a television show, they would have been very true to the canon source material, but who cares? Like you want them to shake it up a little bit. Sure. You you don't want it to, as long as the essence of characters and major events are intact, it's not like they introduced a new character. Like April O'Neil's father is dead uh, during this movie, even though things that he did mattered and influenced April's actions, gave her motivation but they didn't actually introduce a new character that should change the fabric of the entire genre, you know, franchise as we know it. 
Um, so I'm okay with that kind of change because it's more about uh, setup to just kind of give a little bit more meaning to the relationship the turtles have to the villains. And I was okay with that because then at that, that point as well, April is taking a bit more personal responsibility for her father's actions to try and stop these bad guys. She feels like she should try to stop them the same as her father did, you know, and that kind of justifies a bit of her actions. So she's not just Lois Lane looking out, looking to find trouble and get into it because Lois Lane just does that because she's a, a, you know, a Pulitzer prizing winning reporter that just has to get herself into trouble. no, at least April has an excuse for getting herself into trouble. She feels like, you know, she is personally somewhat responsible for the turtles and that her father would have wanted her to try and stop these bad guys. Stop, uh, stop pouring cement in the cracks of my argument. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I, 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 I'm sorry. <laughs> okay. The other, the other thing that the other it's th- your show, TJ, we, we can do whatever you want. Well, I mean, it's yours too. You help co-found the podcast. I mean, it's, you know, uh, all right. So th- there were two other things that were less irritants to me. Uh, but, um, this one I, I call, then suddenly there were pipes. Um, and that th- there's, there's kind of two things to talk about here. And, and that is that while I enjoyed the fun of the slippery slope, it got a little tedious. It went on a little too long and the physics, the physicality of everything made no sense. Like that truck, that great big semi truck didn't feel like it had any real weight. It, it, it felt like a toy truck being slung around by a kid holding on to it. Did and- you ever watch the garfield cartoon show back in the 90s oh did i okay and you remember how in various scenes uh garfield and Odie or, or john arbuckle might be like running through the house yes and f- while they were sharing dialogue and they were just running and running running and running and running, back, and running yes the background kept repeating and they would never get to the end of the other side <laughs> yes, of the room yes <laughs> that's what this truck avalanche scene felt like yes because they just kept going down the same trajectory it seemed like for a a dozen times in the background or in the foreground or in the distance, you could see the cliff that they were approaching. But five minutes later, they had not gone off the precipice. Right. And it's like, where, where are they that that this, this place even exists? And admittedly, I'm not very familiar with the geography of, of the state of New York, but my goodness, where the heck were they? And then B they're going like 80 to a hundred miles an hour or more down the side of this cliff. It just, it's not going to last for 10 minutes or 15 minutes. It's just not, it's just silly. And then, like I said, the, the physicality of things was just all off. Like they were just being slung around like puppets and it, it just didn't make any sense. It just, it was d- dumb. It, I enjoyed it at first, but it just got tedious and just had issues. And you're th- saying it was really true to the source material. Yeah. <laughs> I think you're right. And that's a case where I think that this film would have benefited from, from deviating a little from that source material and, and bringing it a little more into the real world as they were trying to do in other ways. Um, and, and then suddenly, and then suddenly there, as soon as the mountain scene is over, they're just cruising through the pipes of, of, of the sewers of New York city. Like, what? 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 They were there, and now they're there because the script calls for them to be. It doesn't just doesn't make any sense. I have to agree, especially about the pipes thing, because they they showed the pipes for the whole of like ten seconds just to establish that the turtles are rushing to the city to stop the bad guys, 
and they're basically slipping and sliding down the pipes as if it were a water park ride. Right. And yes. all the pipes are heading down, down, down and taking you deeper and deeper into New York City, exactly where they want to go. Yep. And they like launch out of this one sewer pipe and fall a good 70 to 80 feet down into a, the broken hull of another sewer pipe and keep going, rocketing down you know, further into the city. What was with that? Like, no way that exists in the sewerage. You know, that doesn't, that's not who put the water park ride into the sewers. <laughs> yeah. But, I, but at the same time, it's kind of like it was ridiculously um, amusing. So in spite of the fact that it was completely implausible and creates a huge gap, like, again, we're talking about Ninja Turtles, so who cares? Yeah, and you're right. We're, again, this is me overthinking it. Yeah, the, uh, the, the, yeah. La- the last thing that I had uh, that I, I was just kind of a head scratcher was what in the world was Whoopi Goldberg doing in this film? She had no plot point to speak of, <laughs> and she's an awfully big name actor to have in there. And like she, I, I expected like, okay, they've got Whoopi Goldberg. She's going to come back and play some sort of part later in the film. And she just disappeared after the first act and never came back. I don't think she cares. She's like, eh, whatever. I'm not in it for the money. Oh, somebody asked me to be in a movie? Sure, whatever. I'll well, I mean, be I'm sure it was like, oh, yeah, cool. I'd love to be in a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles thing. And then she probably got the script and she's like, well, geez, I've already signed the contract. I, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it was just weird. Maybe she was doing it for the great-grandchildren. I don't know. Like somebody was, in her family was like, oh, yeah, we'd love you to be in the Ninja Turtle film. Oh, okay, I'll do it for you. I'll do it for my nieces and nephews. Who, who knows? Yeah. It was weird. I, I just like why was she, why was her character even there? I didn't get it. I don't know. I, I guess it, it kind of carried a little bit more of the character of April O'Neil to prove the point that she was trying her hardest against all odds because nobody would listen to her. Poor April. She really was more than just there for sex appeal. Gotta believe her. Give her a chance. Is there anything else so. we should know? <laughs> yeah they're well, uh, they're ninjas oh, oh dude <laughs> yeah that was another line tj you really gotta stop quoting movies why you, this is a movie right? podcast oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay well i, I just want to get back to one more like of the film okay before we wrap up sure my computer fell asleep what's with that oops okay here we are um i i actually found this to kind of explain why this movie is better than we were expecting it to be and why it was worth watching once. It feels like turtles is um, turtles feels like a movie that the filmmakers tried really hard to do well. And I don't know if it was passion for the project, their film craft, or they just wanted to make lots of money, but they made a film that's better than the sum of its quirky parts And in the details, there are usually the same mistakes with these high-octane teenager-centric films. But the Turtles film skirts past several of the pitfalls for this genre, or whatever you want to call this. As a whole, the thing that it excelled at was like um, the proper delivery. A delivery that you could buy, that you could accept in the fleeting moment especially when it came to the turtles like yes they were six foot tall muscular turtles and they should be completely stupid but at the same time their delivery was well enough that they were likable you felt like all the different turtles had um 
enough personality to carry their, the reason for their existence. There was the comedy. There was the responsible one. There was the hothead. There was the one that was nerdy. And they, none of them were um, like, uh, none of them felt like they were just tacked on. So for what it was worth, even though you don't see a whole lot of the turtles for the first part of the film, they do a good setup. They establish April O'Neil and the latter half of the film has very, all things considered very little of her. So it can get to the action and, you know, show you more of the heroes they have that give you a good payoff. Um, and, and so I guess what I'm trying to say by this is that the main thing that I got from this film while I was watching it, that fascinated me, TJ was that it actually seemed like the filmmakers were really trying here. Like, you know how we often say that it seems like the movies were trying to insult our intelligence or like they just didn't care. Like they, they keep on using tropes and they just don't care. Transformers franchise. Yeah. Like this film didn't do that. It tried to actually offer some sincere limiting, but you know, a sincere, but limited entertainment. So I was just looking at uh, Jonathan Liebsman's age. He's the one that directed the film, and he was born in 1976, so he would have been around 11 when Ninja Turtles hit the, the screen. So I wonder, you know, you, you, you know, maybe he had some, uh, some love and some passion for the project because he kind of grew up with the Turtles, too, although he would have been a little older when they really became a phenomenon. But, you know, maybe he really did bring that passion to the, to the Turtles, and maybe that's why it turned out to be halfway decent. I don't know. Yeah. Peculiar. Yeah, and and uh, surprisingly, I mean, really surprisingly, uh, since uh, uh, Michael Bay was uh, involved in the film in some capacity, that it didn't turn out to be complete and utter dreck. Uh, yeah, it was. Uh, it who was, knows why he wanted to be a part of the film? Uh, I really wonder. Like, was he actually offered to direct it and just said, "No, I'll pass," but I'd, I'd like to make some money off of it anyway. All the same, unknown. I mean, obviously, his he produced it, so uh, yeah. I'm, I mean, I'm just surprised. Uh, he must not have. I, I guess he must not have cared much about the turtles, or he would have been more involved than when he would he would have ruined it. <laughs> so we can be thankful for that. As it is, um, <clears throat> I think we can move into our. Um, or kind of star our final ratings. thoughts on our star ratings. My my thought is that it's worth seeing. Um, it's not the best film in the world, and we have talked about its issues. There are some issues with the film. Um, but overall, I would say that the film is worth seeing, and I would even say probably worth seeing in the theater, despite the fact that I only give it uh, three out of five stars. I think I would call three stars still in my, sure, go see it in the theater range. Uh, anything lower than that, probably not. But uh, three out of five, I'd say, yeah, sure, it's, it's fine. Go see it in the... Uh, in the theater. And I would say that this is a two and a half out of five stars film for me where I was neither hot or cold about the film. Just kind of mm, like kind eh, of the, the goods and the bads didn't kind the, of cancel each other. Then the book of revelation has something to say about that show. <laughs> just yeah. It's not a criticism <laughs> of me. It's a criticism of turtles. So I'll let, the, I'll let the, the, the book of life, like condemn Ninja turtles and stuff. Um, yeah. So, uh, getting back on track as a whole, in spite of the effort that was obviously put into this film, I had a very hard time getting into it or finding sincere interest in the story. Everything about the action felt too familiar or spectacle driven. And the story's quality is no different from that of, uh, the cartoon series. And so a big budget does not a good, great movie make. Hmm. Well, I mean, I think you're a little hard on it, but uh, sure, I'll, I'll I'll give it to you. 
it's a Thank it's a you, valid sir. opinion. So that's fine. Uh, I I think that you should give it one one half one more half star and get it up to three. But that's that's fine. That's fine. Uh, IMDb uh, user ratings are six point four out of ten, and the critics hate this film, Joe, at twenty percent on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, that is a big stinking thumbs down. It's a rotten film, and I don't agree with that perspective. Uh, the, um, the users, the, uh, average, uh, watcher on Rotten Tomatoes that has rated it, uh, has been a little bit better than 50, it's a 60%. So, um, you know, and again, I, I would fall kind of more in that, that vein at the 60% level. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's, uh, I think the film is worth seeing. All surprisingly. Right. All right. Well, next week, Joe, I think you wanted to, uh, uh, see The Giver. I know nothing of this film. Uh, that's good. But, uh, you, you, uh, you've seen it already, right? Yes, I think you'll be pleasantly surprised. Okay, I'm, I'm looking now on Fandango for the synopsis. A young man living in a future where uh, complacency is valued above all else delivers the sinister secrets to, that hold his fragile society together after being selected to become the receiver of memory in his adaptation. Author Lois Lowry's Newbery medal-winning young adult novel. So it's a young adult film. It's actually required reading in middle schools. The uh, the book came out a couple of decades ago, I believe. My wife read it when she was a kid, and she thought it was pretty good. Hmm. I'm looking for who's in it. Is that okay? So it looks like uh, Jeff Bridges, Meryl Streep, uh, Katie Holmes. Interesting. Yeah, um, the rest of the cast isn't really mentionable, but they, they put in some solid performances. Okay. Yeah. Well, uh, so next week we're going to talk about the Giver then. Uh, and I had thought we would talk about Hercules, uh, just but it doesn't look that interesting to me. Whatever. I mean, we'll probably get to it eventually. <laughs> Thank um, God. <laughs> oh, you don't you don't like look of it? Uh, no. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't really either. But uh, yeah, so the Giver. We'll talk about the Giver uh, next week. Well, that is it for us this week, uh, Joe. Where can people keep up with your work? Uh, catch me on Twitter. I'm at underscore Joe Darnell. And you can also find me on my website. I like to write about movies and technology and the arts and design at joedarnell.com. You can find me on Twitter at TJ Draper Pro over there. Um, and uh, you can follow me for all of my crazy pith- uh, pithy uh, comments and irritating things. And I don't, uh, you know, I know uh, I have a friend who separates his personal uh, life and his work life into two Twitter accounts. I can't do that. Like, I just want to manage one of my own personal accounts. So TJ Draper Pro is where to find that. Um, if you want to keep up with the uh, movie stuff that I uh, talk about all the time and write about, in fact, I just wrote a review of this film on moviebyte.com, M-O-V-I-E-B-Y-T-E.com. Uh, and uh, that's where you'll find me uh, most days uh, writing about stuff. Uh, in fact, uh, for the most part, every day of the week, I'll write a little something there. Uh, and then if you would uh, care to find the show notes for this episode, you can do that at moviebyte.com slash mbpodcast slash 103. Every one of the links that we mentioned earlier, links to uh, things that have pertain to this movie will be in the show notes. Uh, so you'll want to catch up with those over there. Uh, or if you uh, if you use a podcast client like Overcast or Downcast uh, or Instacast or uh, what's called Pocket Casts, uh, those those sorts of uh, podcast clients will automatically pull the show notes in uh, because I include them in the feed and they'll be right there for you to view as well. Uh, so that's it for us. Uh, thank you for listening and uh, tune in next week for the Giver. And we are out of here. Thanks for being here, Joe. Thanks, TJ. Thanks, TJ.